This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is sponsored by Sotheby's Institute of Art, which I'm proud to say is my own alma mater. Shortly after college, I obtained an art business master's degree on their London campus. Sotheby's Institute has been providing a premier education in art and its market since 1969. Join over 6,000 alumni, like me, whose art world careers are connected through a Sotheby's Institute master's degree. Or hone your expertise by signing up for an online course, a two- or four-week summer program for an educational experience that covers everything from art finance and entrepreneurship to art history. Visit Sotheby'sInstitute.com to learn more. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is also sponsored by ArtBase. You're tracking a blue-chip art collection, so why are you using cheap art collection database software? ArtBase is the leading luxury collection management software platform in the world. Totally secure, full-featured, customizable, and easy to use on computers, iPads, iPhones. ArtBase comes with plenty of training and support to get you going and keep you efficient. Unlike most collection management systems, with ArtBase only you have access to your information on your computers. So visit ArtBase.com today to find out more. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Chris Moore, founder of Rondian, the Chinese art magazine, to update us on the latest happenings in the Chinese art market. Chris, it's great speaking with you. How have you been? Very well. Very well indeed. Art Basel Hong Kong just wrapped up a few weeks ago. What were your overall impressions on the art at the fair as well as the level of sales? Well, this issue of Art Basel, Hong Kong, was by far the best yet. And it's all, it's all in the detail. It just ran very, very smoothly. It looked better than ever before. The crowd flows, all of these sort of things that you don't see when you're really wandering around, but you notice that you, because it affects the impression of all the visitors, all the collectors, the artists, the people who are, uh, the gallerists were um, exhibiting. All of that ran very, very smoothly. And I think we can now say that Art Basel Hong Kong is no longer the baby fair. It is, it is very much matured and it is a fully uh, a, a part of the, the Basel and Miami stable. It, it stands on its own two feet. Um, moving on to the, the art and the sales, the, the quality of the art shown was excellent. I think they've done a good job at refining the exhibitor list, I think there's some exhibitors who were left out this year who are going to disagree with me, but it's a very, very good uh, list of exhibitors now. There's really any sort of uh, dud notes. I think it's more about consistency than anything else. You're still going to get much more sort of stellar art uh, in, in quantity and volume at Basel itself or even at Miami. But for overall quality and consistency, Art Basel like Hong Kong really looked fantastic. The mix, it's definitely an Asian fair, and that said though, I still felt it was it had it's very much a case of showing uh, at the same time Europe and America um, in East Asia, and particularly in China. Basel itself will say that it's overwhelmingly an East Asian fair and a Southeast Asian fair. But at the end of the day, there are two client bases 
uh, as galleries uh, overwhelmingly based in uh, Europe, Western Europe, and in North America. So that's important to remember. The next thing becomes sales. Um, sales with goods. Uh, there are a couple of galleries I asked in the final day uh, that were more cautious in their response, saying, well, we had a good fair, an, an okay fair. Um, but they didn't say they had a bad fair at all. And the vast majority of galleries I, I spoke with, um, they were extremely happy, and some were, were just ecstatic with the results that they'd had. And this is important to remember, that, uh, that it's happening in a, a milieu where there is a lot of uncertainty, financial uncertainty, in, in China at the moment. Um, the Chinese government is trying to restrict capital outflows of the renminbi, uh, and as a consequence, there's been there's been a tightening of um, foreign currency exchange controls, uh, and this has definitely affected the market. Uh, the number of galleries that were complaining at the end and saying, "Well, I'm trying to work out how they're going to get uh, payment from their clients," um, because the whole issue is how do you get your remedy out of China? And it was extraordinary difficulty. So that is definitely something that's impacted uh, the market. But notwithstanding that, it was still enormously successful. So that's really a feather in the cap of, of Art Basel. Uh, to achieve this result uh, in this environment um, really was something special. I recall when Chinese collectors' appetites uh, for contemporary art was still in its nascent stages, and we spoke about different tactics and strategies employed by U.S. and European galleries as to what kind of non-Chinese art should be brought to fairs and shown at galleries to relate to these Chinese to collect collectors to entice them to buy perhaps out of their comfort zone. Now in 2017, how different is the art shown to Chinese collectors by these Western galleries than what they exhibit in Europe and America in their home countries? Is it still distinguishable or is it quite similar now? Mm, I'd put it a different way. Um, I think a number of foreign galleries are still trying to find a way to work out what is the magic recipe. Um, I don't think there's a magic recipe. I don't think it's a matter of having bring different things to Art Basel Hong Kong than you would show at Basel itself or in Miami, per se. On the contrary, what matters now is, is merely a matter of familiarity and education. Galleries that some years ago were bringing, you know, for instance, um, Adam Curry, uh, I'm thinking uh, Michael Werner Gallery and uh, Alpine Rex Gallery. And to begin with, there wasn't a lot of recognition of those artists um, in the China, China art market. But now it's, it's not an issue. Also, we have to remember that the Chinese art market develops much faster than any other uh, art market around the world. So two years is going to be a long time. Um, Chinese art collectors are 
very well-traveled, and they are extremely keen to learn about the art world in all its facets. They want to know, if they come across an artist they haven't heard before, then um, they'll go away and they will research it. And they'll find out about all the information, whether it's a historical critique or whether it's market information or the opinions of other collectors or museum directors or curators. Um, so it's, it's a, a market that is developing very, very quickly for all of these reasons. I think we have to take that on, on, on board first and foremost. So bringing different things to Hong Kong, I'm not sure how much that is going to help because all the major collectors are also going to Basel. They're also going to Venice. They're all going to Documenta, to New York, to Los Angeles. This is really uh, part of the course. Um, I think, on the contrary, if a gallery underestimates the audience, that could be a problem. Um, bringing something that's not good enough or you know, not as good as what they might show somewhere else, I think that could backfire. Not going in with enough preparation in terms of, you know, being ready to spend the time talking with people, educating and, and investing um, this sort of time and effort over a number of years. Um, all the galleries that are making the greatest headway, I'm talking about Western galleries making the greatest headway in China now, uh, it all comes down to um, networks. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's the same in North America. It's the same in Europe. It comes down to you know, building those networks, um, not just knowing who the, the collectors are, but knowing who their advisors are, knowing about the artists, knowing about the uh, museum directors, curators, writers, everything, knowing everything about it. And there are many, many, many galleries taking this approach now. Um, so this is... A really a major development, whereas previously it was more of a niche activity of a few um, very smart galleries. Now it is becoming um, de rigueur um, for any gallery with a serious interest uh, uh, in doing business uh, with the Chinese art market. So that's what it comes down to, more than anything else, I really feel. Um, and the other side of that is that our Galleries just coming to sell their own things, or are they going to be open to the Chinese art scene itself? Uh, are they going to be open to um, taking on Chinese artists or showing uh, work from China uh, in Paris or in Berlin or London or New York or Los Angeles? So it has to be a two-way street. That is very, very important. Too many galleries have this idea that it's uh, a gold rush in China, um, and all you have to do is just come and flog whatever you have. Um, I think all the galleries participating in art, uh, Basel, Hong Kong, are more uh, sensitive uh, to this situation and uh, more sensitive to actually becoming uh, closely engaged with the Chinese art scene. Um, but it is still a quite common. Um, impression that you come across um, in the art world beyond China. 
We see the recent success of new museums in China, such as the Used Museum in Shanghai, with impressive, impressive shows recently by Giacometti, Warhol, Cause. How have these new museums and exhibitions positively impacted the overall Chinese art scene in, in its development? Wow, um, that's actually a huge question. Uh, there are many, many new museums, but more importantly, we're seeing the mature, uh, a number of museums um, reach a, a point of maturity that allows them to operate in a much more traditional museum model um, among the best of these reviews. And what they've done is pretty amazing, and their approach um, has been very interesting because on the one side, it's been about crowd-pleasing exhibitions, um, things like Random International's Rain Room. Um, on the other side, they've also had very intellectual shows, like uh, the GX Meta. Certainly it's a blockbuster show, but it's a much more sort of academic show than getting crowds coming along to, to run through the um, Random International's Rain Room. Um, and then on the third point about is, is it has a, a very, very serious education um, uh, program. Uh, it could be text said in a, uh, a talk he gave at Art Basel. Um, that education is actually the biggest department in the institution. That's a very, very important thing. Um, other museums, I think, you know, Long Museum. Uh, has had some very strong shows, had a couple of missteps. Um, we're seeing other museums develop in different ways. Some that have been around for a long time now, like the OCAT uh, that you art spaces that you see in uh, Shenzhen, uh, Shanghai, uh, and also in Xi'an. Um, they run with very small budgets, but they do very, very good shows. What is more concerning is certain um, space, some spaces have not been properly funded, and there's one in particular. I think there's there's a great deal of concern at the moment of the situation of uh, the Orleans Centre, and uh, with the announcement of the Orleans that he wants to leave um, the museum, and basically lose the museum now to, to run by itself. It's a question of, well, how does that work? I mean, where does the funding come from? Um, who's going to support it? Who takes over the, the contracts in what way? This is a very, very complicated issue. And at the moment, this is, I think it's fair, it's fair to say, there, there is enormous um, concern that this particular institution may not endure for very much longer. Um, and the interesting thing in all that, this is... Uh, a Western-backed museum. Uh, it's not the Chinese museum that's collapsing. It's, it's, it's the Western-backed museum. So we'll have to see what happens there. Um, not a very happy situation. But overall, when we look at how um, art museums in China are developing, not the, there's a long, long way to go. Um, overall, they are still... Um, private institutions driven by private collecting. Uh, however, there is intense competition amongst the, the museums 
which is growing every time you know, another major museum uh, comes on board or launches or whatever. Um, increasingly, there's the infrastructure to support them. There's more people who are trained in terms of run, running museums, the administration, all, all, the, all the logistics uh, that you require for running a museum. Um, and whilst there is a steep learning curve, uh, gosh, these, these institutions are learning fast, really fast. They're maturing quickly, and people are beginning to do things in different ways. And of course, we have to remember that there are institutions that manage to do an awful lot that would otherwise be done by museums um, or art spaces in um, other places, but are effectively galleries. Uh, here, I mean, we're talking about vitamin creative space in Guangzhou, that's a very good example. Uh, mm -hmm. Strictly speaking, that's, uh, they're a Kunsthaler, but they also operate as a gallery. And the gallery part of it funds their um, more academic uh, um, pursuits. So there's different ways of doing things, and it's interesting that China can actually uh, show the international world uh, different approaches that have grown out of necessity. Um, other than that, well, we'll still have to see, won't we? There's a lot of things that could still um, go wrong. There's a great deal of uh, uncertainty of one sort or another, political uh, and, and financial uh, around the world. Um, a lot of these museums are very much dependent on funding from you know, one or two individuals what happens when suddenly that funding disappears? We just don't know. And especially for those who are only aware of the cynical realism artists, when it comes to Chinese contemporary art, who are some of the most popular artists in the moment and even artistic trends um, in Chinese contemporary art? Well, just apart from Ai Weiwei. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. Then, yeah, who are then, some on your what? radar that you think people, yeah. our listeners who <laughs> may not be as familiar with Chinese contemporary art, should be uh, you know, Googling right now and taking it, uh, a look at? Uh, where to begin? Um, a painter that I really like uh, is Zhou Li. Um, she's sort of achieving a, 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 a point of maturity with her practice, but uh, she really demands a lot more interest. She incidentally has a solo show at the Youth Museum right now. Um, Zhao Zhao, uh, his work has similarly matured a great deal, whereas previously it was seen in some respects as being you know, a talented student of Ai Weiwei. Um, but there was some question as to um, his staying power. I think with uh, recent work shown that, for instance, at Tang Contemporary, uh, he's showing that he definitely can um, work at the higher level. Uh, an artist that we don't hear terribly much about, she's very shy, actually, um, and I think she's a wonderful painter, is Liang Wei. Uh, she had a solo show at Magician Space last year, and she definitely deserves a lot more attention. Um, she actually started her uh, career uh, with making films as a video artist and making some very, very interesting work. Uh, but they then it just didn't develop for whatever reason. It said she's not somebody who, who um, brags about her work. She's a very, very subtle person. And so she returned to painting and 
the words she produces, which are sort of a mix of um, traditional and modern and uh, abstract and uh, realistic, and you've got to just look at them in, in great detail. They've worked for contemplation over a long period of time. Um, photographer, I asked to work in working the medium of photography is the uh, U.S. Uh, she does amazing work. I mean, I, I haven't seen any of her work yet, but you know, I, I would I'd be happy to have anything by, by her. I think she's um, hugely underestimated, and people need to spend more time looking at her work. Uh, I think she had a solo show at uh, Shanghai uh, you know, a year ago. Um, more established artist, someone I'd like to see much more of, Jiang Zhu who is an artist that can produce so many different types of work, uh, whether it's video or sculpture or, or, or painting or, or photography. He's just really, always really, really interesting. Um, he's actually also the brother of uh, Jim Kang Yi, uh, uh, the uh, photographic artist. Um, I'm long been a fan of Liang Shaoji's work um, and his the way he, very contemplative work it was some sculptures that and, and items that uh, whether it's a bottle or a chair or a, a very large old tree that end up being uh, enveloped uh, in uh, silk spun by silkworms um, one of the older generation artists who uh, mentioned uh, cynical realism and this is the guy who really was the father of the smile that people often associate the fixed smile more with you and me than some others. But Sun Jun Yi um, is an incredible artist, um, and certainly within Chinese art circles, his importance is um, certainly uh, recognised. Uh, but he is an artist that the certainly the international art world has not. Uh, come to fully appreciate yet, and I don't know what that is, why that is, but um, the international art world needs to pay much, much more attention to what he's doing. I, I could say something uh, similar to you know, video artist Yang Jingzhong as well. Um, and then a final artist is somebody that I watched recently, he was uh, shown at Basel, I'm going to say this a few years ago, not four years ago, with Joe Chow, who, who worked in a number of different mediums, often with video and computers and, uh, and animation, but also painting. And he's somebody that, uh, again, I think people need to come back to and reconsider and take the time to learn more about what he's doing. Um, and then, finally, I would mention Sun Yuan and Tang Yu, a dynamic couple. I had the pleasure of interviewing them with Ashley Dickerson and Thomas Eller uh, at Art Basel um, and for an audience. And it was, these are hugely interesting. They're, they're very, um, they're always making jokes when they're talking um, and take time to get into the conversation about, to, to, get, to pin them down about what their art is all about. But apart from being quite shocking and confrontational and provocative, it is essentially to do with um, space, uh, and particularly personal physical space. 
and, and and dealing with that and dealing with, and that is um, something that you know, the Western media is very quick to say this is all to do with there's some political connection, but I think that there's much more important um, social connection uh, with this world. You know, whether it's the column, the sort of Trajan's column made out of um, cellulite uh, obtained from uh, beauty operations, or um, the dogs being uh, Violent dogs sort of matching one another, but held back by by a machine. Or more recently, most recently in uh, the Guggenheim, it's a giant um, looks like it's a giant squeegee moving blood around the place. Actually, it's just creatures. But it's they all come up with something that looks totally different to all their previous work, and at the same time, it is always work that can only be produced by them. So again, in some respects, are similar to Shugen, but their practice, their intellectual uh, approach is, is quite different. Um, I think everyone should definitely be spending more time thinking about them. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts about Art Basel Hong Kong, as well as just some of the recent developments in the Chinese art markets. And for our listeners uh, who are followers of Rondian or who are new to it, tell us a little bit about what's new at Rondion, as well as uh, some upcoming articles you're working on at the magazine. Well, since we last talked, uh, we launched a paper issue of Rondion, which has been going out since uh, Art Basel to Hong Kong 2015. It's published twice a year, and it's normally quite a, a heavy thing, you know, it's up to a kilo. And in the latest issue, uh, we've got... Um, uh, so far, then, you know, Matthew Barney's uh, uh, River of Fundament, uh, we had a quick show at the UCCA earlier on this year. Alvin Lee's writing about uh, view of Felix Gonzalez Torres at the Rockland Art Museum. Uh, Daniel Chang, our Los Angeles correspondent, uh, she interviews Stefan Simkowitz. And Julia uh, Fierce uh, interviews Shang Art Lawrence Hoblin about the first 20 years of the gallery. So that's plenty there to play uh, reading there, and we would uh, love to send you a copy. Perfect. And uh, what's the website for the online ma- version of the magazine? Online version is www.randian-online.com. That only year we move finally to the .art URL. Thank heaven. Perfect. Chris, thanks so much again for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to both ArtBase and Sotheby's Institute of Art for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. You're tracking a blue chip art collection, so why are you using cheap art collection database software? ArtBase is the leading luxury collection management software platform in the world. Totally secure full-featured, customizable, and easy to use on computers, iPads, iPhones. ArtBase comes with plenty of training and support to get you going and keep you efficient. Unlike most collection management systems, with ArtBase only you have access to your information on your computers. So visit ArtBase.com today to find out more. Sotheby's Institute has been providing a premier education in art and its markets since 1969. Join over 6,000 alumni, like me, 
whose art world careers are connected through a Sotheby's Institute master's degree. Or hone your expertise by signing up for an online course, a two or four week summer program for an educational experience that covers everything from art finance and entrepreneurship to art history. Visit sotheby'sinstitute.com to learn more.